0: What's up, guys? It's your boy, Johnny Bananas, and I'll be covering all the treachery, deceit, backstabbing, and murder from Season 2 of The Traitors US on my podcast, Death, Taxes, and Bananas. I'll be joined all season by my fellow castmates to swap stories, provide all the behind-the-scenes antics, and sordid details from filming. So, sally forth and join me for Season 2 of The Traders every Saturday on the Ringer Reality TV podcast feed.
1: Welcome back, everybody. Nice to see you out there, whatever it is. You know, uh, continuing in our um, kind of our Oscar fest right now, talking to some... I love this kind of talk. I just love finding out what people do and and um, just getting to the nitty-gritty. Wait, man, we have somebody real interesting today. Uh, he's a visual effects uh, supervisor, sunset supervisor for the movie Creator, which now Oscar-nominated, I should add. <laughs> but he's also... He's already an Emmy award-winning visual effects uh, supervisor for many shows that that, that you've seen. And uh, we have him here on Black and the Air, Mr. Andrew Roberts. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you, Larry. Thanks so much. Good to be here. By the way, congratulations, man. I was odd, But, you know... I'm like a kid in a candy store when I'm watching these types of movies, you know. I was going to ask, I bet that's how you feel when you're creating these things too, you know, these visual. I best the the best way to put it is they're really visual treats, these types of things, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It really does feel like uh,
2: yes a kid in a candy store i think is a good uh, a good description yeah. um every director wants something different no yes. one wants to say just just make it like that movie that came out last year you know yes. <laughs> so it's, how can we level up how can we do something different and so yes. you're constantly trying to uh, reinvent and find new ways to to support their story so uh, new creative challenges uh, every project which is a lot of fun yeah
1: yeah and you're kind of at the behest of the director and their vision but you bring a lot of your vision and talent into these projects, too. Tell me, what what were some of the conversations? Well, let's tell people about Crater. Creator is this movie that envisions a future where AI has kind of taken over. It's, a post, it's one of those kind of semi-post-apocalyptic type of things. You know, I feel like they just hit L.A., which is kind of a joke almost. <laughs> uh, uh, right. Los Angeles has got kind of destroyed. I'm not sure what that means. But uh, it's very realistic in its portrayal of how AI exists in the forms of like, I'll say, quasi-human form, you know, and that type of thing. And so visually, it's not like what you would call fancy visual. It's realistic visual to me Mm -hmm. in terms of effects where I completely, it just looks real to me. I don't even think that they're effects, you know? which is a compliment to you and your team, you know, and everyone. So what are those conversations like before you get into this type of movie? Because I I know your role was the unset supervisor. Is that right? That's right. Yes. Okay. So
2: working alongside the overall um, supervisor, Jay Cooper. All uh, right. Some of the conversations were with um, Jay and Gareth Edwards okay. about uh, his influences, his vision for mm. the film. Um, and so, some of the influences that uh, that, that Gareth mentioned was um, Blade Runner.
1: I was gonna guess Blade I, I can almost name it my bet. <laughs> okay Blade Runner for sure. Yes. also Apocalypse Now
2: 100%. that's right. that was one of yeah. the um, one of the primary movies he mentioned in our first conversation.
1: yeah. yeah I, you put those two together. There's a lot of Vietnam in this movie in my mind and a lot of Blade Runner, there's a little bit of Terminator even. Sure. Uh, yeah, some of that stuff. But anyhow, go ahead. Don't want to take the,
2: take <laughs> the time, well, well. There was one <laughs> other movie that was. Um, I had to go back and and watch. Uh, it was a, a little more obscure. Baraka, um, which is sort of like oh, a. It's a documentary style, um, non-narrative, uh, oh. film that's beautiful. It just focuses on um, people in different parts of the world, uh, oh. different traditions, uh-huh. uh, and and that was one of um, Gareth's sort of his touch tones. And so there are moments that you'll see that. Um mm-hmm. like uh where there's when uh, John David Joshua um mm-hmm. the 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 criminal the soldier who uh you know has this transition through his life towards end and you see him at that village and he's reflecting on the similarities between uh humans and uh these this highest form of robot um, creature the simulants and you see some cutaway shots of um an old robot lady or a robot um with holding a kid's hand walking up a pathway or uh, unwrapping some candy and giving it to a kid or petting a cat Mm -hmm sifting through rice these little throwaway moments that yeah. you don't see in a visual effects uh, movie because often those shots are pretty expensive to um, to yeah. execute and so uh, the 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 idea would generally be let's make sure anytime we feature a robot on screen they're doing something they're moving the story forward but yeah, these moments of let's really try and make this uh, world real uh, sometimes they're bored, they're sitting on a boat, you know, leaning up yeah. against the wall, you know, maybe smoking a cigarette. And I think um, wow. that, that that comes from Baraka and that comes from this idea of a lived in world. And uh, Gareth worked very closely with James Klein, uh, the production designer. Gareth Edwards himself was a visual effects artist. Interesting. Um, and he's great, deeply into product design. Yes, um, you can tell. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And concept art. And so he spent a lot of time prior to the film. Um, just figuring out the look of this world, the history yeah. of this world. Um, and you said it's lived in. There's just so many designs that James and Gareth worked on. Um, yeah. And I'll talk talk about the, the way, sort of the unique approach to the shoot. But that allowed Gareth now, when he had this footage, to do paint overs with James. Um, which was a little different. You know, generally the production designer is on through Mm pre-production. They're present um, for the shoot to make sure the elements that they've designed and created, you know, are caught in camera. And then when you wrap that production designer is like, okay, I'm off to my next thing. Yeah. Uh, James stayed on throughout the entirety of post.
1: Interesting.
2: After Gareth edited the film, um, then he sat with James and then they would talk about this scene, this world, um, you know, this the, the the terrain or what they were seeing in camera and then they would paint over james would say well this building let's take advantage of this architecture that's already present or this terrain why don't we build this thing into it mm. And, and generate this visual history. And he would do that very quickly with sketches. And then Gareth and James would have this quick feedback. And then when something looked good to Gareth, then that would be passed to Industrial Light and Magic, to Jay and the team, where then they would build this thing that worked from that angle.
1: Wait, and, and this is in post? This is in post, yes. That's crazy. Yeah,
2: and it... It's unconventional, but it made so much sense um, to do it that way rather than saying, "Okay, we know we need this futuristic city. So let's Mm -hmm. build this huge city that looks amazing from all of these angles. But then uh, based on what you've shot, you only need it from, you know. We just need looking down the pathway and this this material directly behind John David or, or Madeleine Boyle. So yeah. really the focus was on capturing this um, terrain, this environment, focusing on the characters. And then afterwards, mm-hmm. starting with 2D artwork, getting it looking right, passing that and then building that um, 3D right. version of it. And then at times Gareth would say... It looked good in 2D, but now that I see it in 3D, <laughs> not quite translating. Right, right, right. So then those rendered images would get passed back to James again, and he would say, well, why don't we just shave off this corner here and tweak this other yeah. thing and add a little bit more decay in that area? Um, so then he would take that and paint, take it into Photoshop, essentially make some additional adjustments, and then pass that to ILM again for them to build the 3D version. Um, wow. So I think that's why it feels so deep and integrated and natural to the yes. environment because of that
1: process. It's so fascinating because you, you know, the layman watching it would think those decisions had to be made ahead of time, you mm. know, in order for, you know, a film to have those kind of layers, you know, right. but uh, it kind of speaks to your role being unset. Like I'd never considered that that was a role of a VFX was the unset role. Tell me how important is that? Because there were decisions that you guys made on the fly on set, right?
2: That's right. Yes. Yeah. So um, the onset visual effects supervisor, my role was to be there alongside Gareth as a creative partner. So yeah. problems might arise or challenges or differences, you know, you sort of think it, things some, mm-hmm. it's going to look a certain way. And then once you're there, Um, it's different. Surprise. Surprise. Exactly. (laughs) Here we are. What are we going to do? And so um, my role was to be there with him and for us to figure out things that might crop up. Um, And then also to try and capture the essence of any given location, Um, Mm. the lighting information, the geometry of the Mm -hmm. set measurements, some technical information, what camera lens was used here, how far away were they from the characters? And, gather that information to pass to the team um, at ILM in order for them to then be able to build an environment because they would receive the background footage and they've no idea, you know, is there a huge building directly behind the um, behind the camera that might, there would be some reflections perhaps in John mm-hmm. David's visor or are there some other objects that would inform what's what's happening? And so there are a series of tools and techniques that I'll use to um, scan the environment, take reference photos um, and to build a library of what it was actually like um, to mm-hmm. be there. And so it was that balance between being there for Gareth, figuring out how can we do this? How can we make this really realistic? Um, and so that what we get in Canberra is giving the
1: team at ILM the best um, chance possible to create great material. What's the biggest challenge of that for you, Andrew? Does it, is it a little disorienting being there and doing that? Or uh, do you feel like you have more power because it it's almost like, oh, this is great, you know? I'm- I'm in this conversation as we're going. I can avoid maybe some pitfalls here or or I can be more additive to this conversation.
2: Um, Yeah, it's it's an enriching environment and situation Mm -hmm. to be in. Um, It's exciting. Uh, I started off as an artist myself and been in that situation on the box receiving, um, you know, the background plates and some instructions, maybe some storyboards. And then tasked with creating uh, an environment or enhancing it. And so often for me, I would just think about if I was working on this shot, you know, we're here at Lilac City with Joshua and Alfie. And Mm -hmm. um, this is the thing that's being filmed. What information would be most helpful to me? Gareth was very indie in his approach. It was very lightweight. He moved quickly. so I wasn't able to capture everything that I would typically um, yeah. like to, to grab. But uh, I would often ask myself, if I can just come away with one or two things, what would that be? And perhaps Mm -hmm. that would be um, after Gareth had filmed a primary interaction between uh, Joshua and Alfie, uh, then he would hand the camera to me and I would then shoot what we call a clean plate. So all Uh. the actors um, they've cut and they've moved off the set. And I know that there are going to be robots that Alfie, she has this mechanism of this hole going through her head. So if she turns and there's a profile, then you're going to need to see the material that's, The content that's behind her. And so a clean plate allows me to just film a backdrop that then can be used to fill in some of that negative space um, as we remove characters and then put robots uh, in their place. So maybe it's shooting a clean plate or maybe it's trying to capture the full dynamic range of a a location. And there's a technique I'll use with a fisheye lens um, and do a circular um, survey of an an environment um, to then allow the deepest information in the deepest shadows from the detail that would be in a bright light. It will capture the Mm. full range and artists will then use that information to relight a scene. So um, you've got this footage of a location uh, in Thailand, in Bangkok, and then you mm-hmm. place a robot there and then you can use this uh, material to then relight it so that it looks as if that robot was present in the scene. They're rece- receiving the same shadows, um, yeah. same lights that other people in that environment would be. So um, I would look for what would I need? Um, what would be the most important thing um, if mm-hmm. I was working as an artist myself to to try and recreate a shot? Um, and of course, just being able to be part of that conversation, understand why Gareth is doing certain things. Um, yeah. Because he had a very clear idea of what he wanted. And so at times he might be walking through a village um, with the camera and then he would tilt up to the sky and then sort of pan around and then tilt back down. And so mm-hmm. I would be re- watching this on our monitoring software where we can all see what the camera sees. So when he would cut, I would go over to him and say, okay, you know, what were you seeing or what do you imagine is up yeah. there? And so, making those notes, he, you know, he'll say, "Oh, yeah, there was a, there's a jet copter, I imagine, that's going to fly over." This is when the Marines come in. Um, and so, to be able to take those notes, maybe take uh, reference photos of. So,
1: some of this is not even in the script. This is just him kind of improvising. This right? is him
2: improvising. Yes. Wow. And he really did take uh, this improvisational, um, mm-hmm. organic approach to the shoot, um, which is quite different from other shoots I've been on, where yeah. you know, you have the characters. We're looking this way. There's a backdrop. We're filming them from this angle and then cut. And, you know, you do a few takes. All right, moving on. Gareth would do these rolling takes where he would be filming for uh, 30, sometimes 40 minutes before he would cut. Wow. And he would have. That's crazy. It was really quite um, different. I know some other directors do that. Um, That was new for me. Um, And so it it forced me to be more flexible to just sort of adapt to what I was seeing. But the reason for that is Gareth might start off with the two shot that was originally on the shot list, but now yeah. he's hunting for the right angle. So he would have them reset and then they're going through their lines again. And now he's sort of in profile. Now he gets a little closer to to Alfie or pulls back, might rotate. And so now it's 180 degrees from where he originally started, but trying to capture the performance from the perfect angle.
1: I um, can't, you know, I can't even imagine like, that's what, I'm sure. That's why you said Indy to me, it, Like, if you're at the the studio financing this, you're like, how is everything not completely carefully (laughs) worked out before you even set foot there? (laughs) Wait a minute. You're going to improvise some of these things? You don't know what some of these shots are? (laughs) You're going to shoot for 30 and 40 minutes and hope you find something? I mean, that almost sounds crazy to me.
2: Well, I would say... yes for sure if it was like let's just go there and see what we get you know let's just see uh, what we get (laughs) right that for sure it's called the creator I'm going (laughs) to create I'm going to create yeah Yeah. just work with me Um, prior to the shoot Gareth had gone to he visited eight countries as a Mm -hmm. for a location scout the 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 studio New Ridden City had given him some money to sort of figure out what this environment would look like. And he yeah. actually went and he shot shot a short film. So he visited Thailand, Cambodia, Japan, um, uh, Vietnam, uh, a whole range of places, um, filming some drone shots, uh, mm-hmm. sort of a loose narrative, again, sort of that Baraka, just mm-hmm. capturing a slice of life in each of these countries. Yeah. And then he edited together um, a short film from this, um, following this little boy through some of these uh, locations who... Um, then he brought that to Industrial Light and Magic and asked them, okay, can we add some robots into this? Let's, this this footage of this monk, let's turn him into a robot. What would that be like? Or um, a character on a bicycle or a man hanging out um, by the river. Um, let's add these buildings in the background. And they worked together to create this sort of concept reel. Um, and so he was able to then present that. Uh, to the um, to the studio, to the key people that he wanted to get involved in the film, and so mm-hmm. um, it was like uh, a revelation to them. Oh, this is what you want to do. This is what the world looks like. I see you have mm-hmm. your process, and this is going to be the end result of it. Right. Um, it sort of goes back to Gareth's first film, Monsters. Uh, he travelled through South America. Uh, it was a very small team. It was quite improvisational, a um, small crew. And he just captured these actors interacting um, and sort of riffing off of each other's emotions and just loosely following this storyline. Um, and then he took that footage and he spent over a year doing the visual effects himself. Wow. Um, and really just very looking cool. at what he captured and what would go well in this, in this location. And so that's something that... Um, he had a lot of freedom to work on this indie monsters. Um, mm-hmm. then he was recognized by Hollywood and got to do, um, Godzilla and Rogue yeah. one, um, and found that with those larger budget budgets and with all of that, you know, sort of more responsibility, there are now constraints where he was thinking, I have the freedom to shoot what I want and put what I want in there. It ends yeah. up sort of being the inverse of that. Um, like it's very tightly controlled
1: with something like rogue one, you also have an audience that is so demanding of certain things. And so there's such the pressure to get things right, you know, Uh, and I'm talking about with the visuals too, not just, I mean, that world is the, the, (laughs) I'm going to insult some people, but the nerd attention to the star Wars world, I mean, can, that can almost ruin you as a director. If you feel, if you don't get some of those things, right, it seems like, but, uh, uh, I thought Rogue One was such a, a a winning movie in that series. I thought, you yes, know? yeah, absolutely. And you're right. Just the, um, I'm sure there's a lot of pressure that comes
2: with trying to stay absolutely. faithful to the canon, um, reach the levels of exactly of, of visual fide- fidelity that the other movies.
1: Yeah, because when you think about that, put Lucasfilm on the map. You know, that's this whole company that is doing that, right? And you know that. The visual and the sound and all that is part and parcel of this experience that the audience has expectations about. Yes, know? yeah, for sure. Um, I, also, here's what's interesting to me about this. What's interesting about creator too about your process is like some of the actors didn't didn't know whether they were going to be uh, simulants or human. Is that right? That's right. Well, they didn't know if they were going to be robots.
2: Um, robots. Or, or human, okay. yes. Or human. So, so the simulants, there were just a few of them. Um, Ken Watanabe, um, who played Okay, uh, they knew what was going on. They right, knew, right, and right. yes. Yeah. And that okay, was sort of got pretty it. central to, to the storyline. And uh, we would place dots on their head to be able to track their movements. We would look for areas where when they emoted, the skin didn't slide too much. So we'd be able to say, we tilted his head and so the uh, the mechanics need to follow. And there was a lot more to it, but basically um, that allowed us to track. But yes, you're right for the robots. Um, gareth found it made it was easier for him not to tell people they were humans (laughs) or robots because it affected their performance um initially when he would set up the world for them and say okay so there are robots and humans they live together uh and you know you're going to be a robot then people would be asking how do i move you know um and then they started sort of it was affecting their thought process. And no, 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 they think they're human. Like they, you know, that's mm-hmm. sort of—they're inspiring to be part of this community. And so they're completely natural. Um, and it ended up being a lot easier just not to tell anyone whether they were going to be a human or a robot. And so he got these really naturalistic um, performances. Mm-hmm. Um, the challenge of that, though, is that normally you would. Cover someone in these mocap pajamas, and there'd be some, right, and then you right. could then <laughs> right. you know track their yes. movements and then remove like they're
1: them. doing a a game for EA Sports, like those old things with the exactly it it, right, yeah. Um, but with. G- um,
2: Gareth not having made those decisions, which was a little stressful for me. I initially would ask him, okay, will he be a robot? And he'd be like, right. I don't know, uh, let's find we'll out. See. Let's, we'll see. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, and the, the team at ILM have some great software that allowed them to um, enhance or remove um, um, body parts um, okay. and, and deal with that afterwards. It also allowed Gareth to look at a piece of footage and analyze where does the eye go? Okay, so when we we're in this shot, you know, we're watching this person coming at camera. Um, And so it will be great if she's a robot, but then afterwards I find myself darting screen left. So that guy over there, let's turn him into a robot. And so they were able to be very targeted and very intentional that for some shots, you may feel like, oh, there's robots everywhere and there may only be two or three um, mm-hmm. because they've really tried to, to sort of put those dollars up on the screen. Um, and it also meant that he wasn't backed into forcing, to being forced to use a particular person. You know, if uh, he said, okay, you put on those those tracking marks, you're going to be a robot. And then if the performance wasn't that great, um, you're stuck with this footage of this person that, uh, now do we cover him up? How do we deal with it? Um, but allowing him to just back into it and see what makes sense, uh, for any given shot, I think, um, uh, made it uh, much more successful and added to the, 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 depths of the world.
1: Yeah. What was the biggest challenge for you being on set in this, uh, type of working environment and in the different environments you're in too? You shot most of it in Thailand. Is that what you're saying? That's right. Yes. Um,
2: mm-hmm. 80 locations in Thailand. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. So sometimes we would just be in a location for a day or two and others for up to a couple of weeks, but really traveled from the, the beaches in the south to floating mm-hmm. villages, jungles, um, a quarry, a wide range of of locations. Um, and then also additional locations afterwards. We, we were shot in Pinewood Studios in the UK um, for a virtual production portion. For some locations that don't exist, the the Nomad space station, um, and you've got this bright light on the terrain, basically the the, uh, the the fields of grass, but it would be a black sky of of, of space. And so, for those, we needed a, a separate um, setup, which virtual production enabled us to capture. But then, other places like Japan and Cambodia and Vietnam, um, Indonesia, mm. Tibet. So Gareth really travelled and captured um, these unique locations um, from from all over Southeast Asia. Um, the biggest challenges for me. Um, keeping up with Gareth, capturing the information that was going to be most useful to the team, um trying to find techniques to really um, integrate what I knew later would be visual effects onto the characters right. um, was a key thing that I think um, helped and that working very closely with our um our cinematographer Aaron Sofer, Sofa uh-huh. um, we were able to come up with the techniques. So for instance, when uh, John David, is at ground zero and uh, he's scanning for any um, any robots, any life forms um, in this, you know, this wasteland of um, traffic that had been nuked. Um, he's using a device to sort of scan, it's doing somewhat of a sort of a, a LiDAR or laser scan over surfaces. Um, we knew that we wanted to capture something in camera. And so um, we had footage that I uh, meshed together, um, Different graphic elements that was animated, and connected that from my um, my MacBook to a projector, um, which uh-huh. I was then holding and just passing back and forth over. Um, some objects within, we had a dummy um, that was in the back of the car. And so now you're getting the contours um, of the light over the surface of this, of this character, the reflection of the light that's bouncing back onto him and it's reflecting onto the right. and into the, the interior of the vehicle. And um, that was a starting point for ILM to then take and enhance and make it more realistic. Right. There were other techniques like that for when um, John David is interacting with holograms, um, when, uh, yeah, Uh, drew's girlfriend cammy who's in the apartment when she goes to answer the door for ice cream Um, Mm -hmm. there's a hologram that sort of rings a doorbell and there's a blue light that um um, turns on when she's interacting with the the hologram and so placing leds in scenes so that she's getting some naturalistic lighting on her i think just finding ways to um, connect the, the footage and the characters in camera knowing that we're going to enhance it Um, was
1: yeah it's that combo platter that really pulls off the realism of this as opposed to just inventing something out of the camera you have that combo in the camera and out of of the camera exactly Uh, that's right yeah Um, or post you know whatever you want to say what now as me as a writer producer my eye is looking at certain things in a scene i'm i'm looking at performance primarily that type of thing like when you're on set what is your eye looking at like what are you what are you focusing on and have you ever had moments where you and Gareth disagreed over something or it doesn't have to be a big disagreement where you are just seeing something different? When
2: I'm looking at the screen, I'm, I mean, I'm, part of me is watching that performance and just enjoying mm-hmm. being present and seeing what is being captured and how that supports the story. Um, but I'm really looking at those visual elements um, mm-hmm. and what will be there later and how will this be a shot? Um, well, what are the scenes that we filmed prior to this uh, that will need, you know, we'll, we'll connect, you know, what kind of visuals need to be created. You're, you're
1: putting a puzzle together
2: as you're watching it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so that's from the scripts and then also maybe from the shot list and then also any storyboards. There were some storyboards for key action um, scenes that uh, that Gareth had artists put together. And so I'm looking at sort of that recipe and then also now seeing the the footage that is being captured, and trying to imagine what are the layers that are going to need to go in mm. to um, to execute and, and be a final a final shot. And in order for it to get there, what do I need to capture and give the team? Um, mm-hmm. I'm also looking for problems um, mm. that, um, hmm. that that might be a problem in terms of the way something is being filmed. Um, Gareth avoided blue screen um, for the vast majority. I'd say 95% of this film is shot without any blue screen.
1: Fascinating. That's amazing. And I understood
2: that it really helped the visuals to be in real locations. It was important to Gareth to travel Mm -hmm. to these places capture the actors in there. You just get the texture and the realism, the reflection, the lighting, all of that. And also their performance. If you're in a room um, just surrounded by green, it's it's different, exactly.
1: Well, that whole feeling of, you know, that's why I mentioned Vietnam, that whole feeling of seeing soldiers going through a village and what that feels like, you know, and the fear that is on people's faces when you see massive tanks, you know, in that one scene. All that type of stuff just was really visceral yes right. yeah and you exactly and so you get these
2: mm-hmm. happy accidents from being in a location um but there were times where blue screen was necessary and so mm-hmm. um that then I, I had to sort of talk to a, a grip someone um to someone on the lighting team to pop up a screen and put it behind, let's just say Alison Janney, she's leaning out of um, what will be um, later a jet, jet copter. And we've got a fan that the special <laughs> effects guys are, right. are um, blowing on her. And so her hair is fluttering. Um, but we know that we're going to need to put a background, a different location behind right. her. We're going to be flying. You know, this is helicopter is grounded and um, it's going to need to be airborne. Um, and <laughs> yeah,
1: Alison Janney's not Tom Cruise. It's like, we're going to put you in an actual copter, Alison and have you jump out. I don't think so. Let's <laughs> do this on terra firma, please. Yeah,
2: exactly. Yes, exactly. exactly. Um, mm-hmm. and so times like that, I know that um Gareth just didn't want to be held up, but he appreciated being a visual mm-hmm. effects artist, the importance of right. let's pop some blue behind her hair because otherwise there's a process called rotoscoping where you need to kind of trace around um, yeah. each element of the hair or the body. And then in order to extract the background to put the uh, the other thing back there and some blue just held up behind her or set further back um, enables a much easier, quicker and more efficient extraction. So um, um Every once in a while, I did need to go in there and and pop something up in order to again mm-hmm. capture something that would be most useful for the team. Um, there weren't many. I'm trying to think if there were disagreements or areas where we were at odds. Um, nothing major. I think at times I would have loved more time to mm, to, to capture, yeah. um, sure. but it was a very fast moving, nimble set. Um, and so I very quickly adapted to the speed that they were working at. And uh-huh. this, again, was one of the conversations we had at the outset when I was speaking to John Knoll, um, one of our creative directors at ILM. And John was the visual effects supervisor for Gareth on, on Rogue One. So he and I had conversations before we went, before I went on location. So right. he could sort of talk to me about Gareth's process, uh, the rolling takes, uh, some of the things that I would and wouldn't get um, from the conversations John had with Gareth about, you know, what he hopes to do on on the creator. Uh, so that helped um, prepare me. Uh, Gareth said he doesn't want the tail wagging the dog.
1: <laughs> but
2: he's there. He wants that connection with his actors, um, and he doesn't want anything to get in the way of that. He yeah. tried to avoid saying cut <laughs> because he knows that. You know, when you sell, say, cut everyone that's, you know, be behind the camera, that's their moment to zoom in. Let's t- touch up John David's makeup. Or let's yeah. adjust uh, Alison Janney's costume. The people start doing things, um, right. you know, which um, he really wanted to avoid. He really just didn't want to have that, uh, break that connection be- between him and the actors. So um, he would have these long takes. He didn't want anything to get in the way of his process and Gareth had mentioned, if Qtake, the remote monitoring software, if that stops working, I'm not going to stop filming, um, mm-hmm. which on other sort of more established productions, uh, that might happen. If Signal goes down at Video Village, then maybe someone would radio to the first the AD, the director, uh, hold up, we have, a, we have a problem, you know, and then... You, he's there holding the camera he's ready but now there's some other thing that needs to be done before right. he can um he can continue and gareth made it clear we're not we're not doing that i you won't get everything you want we're going to move quickly uh, there may be times when it's not perfect for you but i really want to capture these moments and if it feels right and looks right and we're ready to go we're going you know
1: good for him i mean yeah. to really focus on performance yes and not on the other is fascinating because this movie, every single shot there's something going on. It's not like there are certain, you just save it for these sequences. It's every moment of the film, (laughs) there's something going on, you know, and for that to be his main focus is really fascinating to me. Yeah. Did you you have uh, some favorite sequences? Because I know uh, you have to be a perfectionist. I'm sure you are, Andrew. And I yes. know you're watching the movie going, oh, I wish I could have done that. I know there's those moments, but you can tell me those if there are. But but also what moments stand out to you? It's like, yeah, yeah, we did that right there. That's mm. nice. That's nice. You, do you still get those moments or? I do. I do. Uh-huh. There's uh, there are a couple um, when
2: um, we're in the farmhouse. Uh, so this is when things have sort of gone left and John David is with Alfie. Uh, he mm-hmm. realizes that this is the weapon. And um, then the farmer comes in and, and John David has this standoff with him. Yeah. There's a moment where the, the farmer gets down to his knees and he's cradling Alfie's um, head in his hands and he turns mm-hmm. her head to the side. And you hear the wonderment in his voice and he says, they've they've made a child yeah, and it's yeah. so intimate. It's so close up. It's an incredibly hero view of Alfie um, yeah. and the movie really um, rests on your belief that this is a real thing. This is a real creation. Um, And so the work that was done from capturing the lighting information and um, the the, the supporting details to to be able to reflect, but then all of the artwork that went into the the team at ILM, the the animation for the the headgear and the the lighting Mm -hmm. and just the way that it's locked rock solid to um, this little girl's performance um, that to me is is a beautiful scene. It's unflinching. It's got to work, otherwise, you know, you sort of you're you're pulled out. Um, so I really love that moment. Um, there's a moment at Ground Zero where you see this Crusher um, that's Mm -hmm. the doors are closing and you just see this pile of robots in the center. And there's one (laughs) of them that's sort of (laughs) scrambling trying to get out. Just see a glimpse of it. I love that. Yeah. That was just such perfect animation, um, by the artists that, uh, you know, you, it's, it's sort of macabre. It's the banality of, of evil. You know, there's sort of all of that in that that moment, um, which, uh, yeah, that, that gets me, um, every time I love that. Um, Yeah, there's probably, I I could sort of go on for, but those were a couple of them. There were some really personal moments, and I I was surprised at how certain moments still hit me emotionally. Mm. Um, Towards the end, um, when Alfie uh, is, uh, John David's been asked to decommission her, and she's strapped to the chair and uh you know she looks at him there's this bond that's built up between them um yeah. there's that real inherent trust she has in my friend joshua that's right um yeah. that now she realizes as as dad and she glances down and she says am i going to heaven you know um such a beautiful performance um she mm. was just such a talented a- um,
1: actor um what is the actor's name madeline voyles she was fantastic man. yeah first time actor this was That's first crazy. Role. Yeah, so good. Yeah. So simple, but was able to uh, emote so simply, which I'm sure is one of the qualities that you know Gareth was going for. You know that sort of simply e- emoting. Yes. Know? Yeah. For sure, it, it was a a treat
2: to really watch uh, Alfie on set. Again, going through multiple takes and given little variations based on yeah. Gareth's direction. Um, and also just to see that really great connection that she had uh with John David because it is that, you know, yeah. lone wolf and cub kind of um story yeah. that, that you see. Does
1: mm-hmm. does the morality of a film affect how you want to do something? And by that, like this is one of those films I it's very contemporary in the sense where you're not sure who to root for. To me, that's very contemporary. Yeah, you can look at almost any conflict in the world right now. It's not the way it used to be. Mm. We're many times we're conflicted about the conflict. You yeah. know? <laughs> right. it's like who are we rooting for here? You know, right. I mean, just choose choose anyone in the world right now. That question is a valid question. You know, mm. and this movie has that in spades. You know, where it's like, wait, whose side are we on here? You know, but you know, does How does the, does that play any part in, because you don't want to intentionally villainize the side, I guess is what I'm saying. You know, there's, there's kind of a neutrality here in the look, but, you know, there, I'm sure when you're doing these effects, if there's a clear cut, let's say villain, and I'm being kind of crude in my language here, there's, there's a certain um, philosophy as to how you want this thing portrayed, you know? Um, even in terms of, uh, let's say maybe an iciness to it, a coldness to it, Mm. you know, the way it blanketly maybe does things or something like that were made, then maybe there's a soft, softness to, you know, what your hero is and that type of thing. Right. Um, how do the, do you have any conversations that are that much or is it just a little more general? And I apologize for that long question, but. No, Just but that makes it. sense. It's, it's, it's more general. So much of yeah. that will come um, in post
2: and then yeah. in that um, communication from Gareth to Jay and the team that are executing it in post. Certainly when mm-hmm. I was on set, it's really about trying to uh, capture as much fidelity um, in the performance and in the location, the environment um, so that I can hand that off to the team. So now as uh, Jay and Ian and Charmaine and the rest of the supervisors are, are working with their teams. Um, they've got material to help support the direction that they um, that they're getting mm-hmm. from Gareth. Um, from Gareth. So, uh, yeah, I think that really came from Gareth, from James Klein and and his vision of the performance. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really that doesn't really affect too much what sure. I'm doing on set in terms of yeah, what yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm trying to uh, to to capture.
1: This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life, with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. How did you get started in this realm? Do you grow up in England? Yes. um, Mm -hmm. Born
2: and raised in London, South London. Mm -hmm. And
1: I bounced around trying to find my career.
2: started off more on the technical side um, Mm -hmm. and um, started off as a computer programmer, but then got some... Mm code for an architect's firm and that introduced me to graphic software and i found Mm -hmm. i was much more interested in you know creating pictures and that harkens back to my father who was a carpenter um, and he introduced myself and my brothers to design and creating Mm -hmm. and making things so i think there was that that connection Um, and i think my big break was joining a games company um back back in london um, where we were creating 3D environments. We were doing animation. Um, and I, with that company, I got to see, that's when Jurassic Park was released. So mm. late nineties. And that was Transformational, right? Um,
1: actually, early
2: 90s. Transfer. Was it 95, uh, 93, uh, 94, mid 90s? That's yeah. right. Yeah, early mm. mid. Um, for me, there was a talk that was given um, at uh, the South Bank University by one of the um, computer graphic supervisors, um, Stefan Meyer. He traveled over and he was talking about the work that ILM actually did um, on this film and that allowed me to see the connection between what i was doing uh, in games and um there were just so many parallels between um, at a much higher level that they had um uh, used for the dinosaurs for the, the <laughs> and that really sparked my interest in could I get into film? Um, could that be something I do with uh, with my career? Um, that was the beginning. I, I moved to um, LA with a friend to, to start a company that was focused on games. Um, the founder pr- sort of pretty quickly decided that that wasn't what he invested, in, wanted to invest in because that's a long-term, you know, it takes a while for you to recoup your investment in the games industry. Um, mm-hmm. But I'd made enough connections where I was able to start as a 3D artist, um, working on TV shows and commercials, and then getting into uh, into to features. So from being an artist on the box, then I got to become a CG supervisor, um, to overseeing teams and sort of focusing on the 3D side of it, and then eventually moving uh, on set, um, working more closely with um, filmmakers and mm-hmm. um, sort of having the overall vision for the project. So it was a little circuitous, but I, I look back at each of the things I've done from being a technical writer to a programmer, um, to doing drafting. And I use that combination of technical and creative, um, you know, every day when I'm, when I'm working on on projects.
1: What is your favorite, what's the favorite part of the process for what you do? Um, does anything stand out to you there? Like for me, I love putting the thing together, you Mm. know, figuring out, okay, how does this all fit together? Like from a writing point of view, when you figure out that puzzle, You know, writing jokes has always been my favorite thing, too, you know, but, you know, there's nothing like pulling off the perfect, you know, the perfect type of joke. But putting the whole story together, I always find a joy in. Is there anything that's really satisfying to you in the visual effects world? Um, I've always enjoyed lighting and rendering. Um, Mm. So that um,
2: adding the textures, adding the depth. yeah, um, And, uh, yeah, I would say the lighting, the rendering... um, you know what is that history observing the natural world and then seeing how I can you know imbue that into a, a digital environment has, has always been um, sort of very satisfying um you know should there be dirt and rust and vines you know what what does this environment need to really make it feel lived in um, and to sort of really connect with the characters So I would say overall that process of of creating putting those elements together, yeah. Um, so from the rendering and then there's also this process called compositing where you'll take other elements yeah. and layer them in on top of you know that 3D environment. And uh, mm-hmm. um, you're seeing little imperfections um, from the director's point of view, like, OK, well, the boom mic dropped in there. So let's remove that. Um, and there was a person in the background that we don't want when they were crossing the street or they looked at camera. So um, <laughs> can we place something over them or can we adjust their eyeline? Um, so I think. Yeah, the process of bringing the images together um, mm-hmm. and really polishing it. Uh, I am a fe- perfectionist. And so um, yep. if I need to, you know, do something, 20 revisions, 25 versions, 100. Yeah. Um, it's um, I really sort of try and stay locked in within reason. There's a budget to be concerned about, you
1: know, yep. but um, really try and get sort of like the push-pull. The push-pull. We need more money and time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, I enjoy the creation. Yeah, when I was a kid, um, I remember our dad took us to Universal Studios tour, and that was kind of my first introduction to seeing that. I'll never forget when they were explaining how the visual effects were done in The Sting, you know, they made it look like old Chicago, and that was the old days where they were, uh, the matte paintings that where they paintings. would take apart yeah. that, and I was so fascinated by that process, mm. and, and I remember uh, hearing the stories of when Lucas was first showing his cut of Star Wars to some friends, and it didn't have all the effects in yet, and, you know, he was breaking rules that People didn't know about it yet, so really, the expected they were seeing these dogfights from these old movies that he put in these places, and they thought this movie was going to be horrible. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting how Star Wars was that first movie where the VFX was the unbridled star. You know, yes, I mean it. That's what captured the imagination of people more than anything else. You know, do do you, is there a favorite movie in your mind that when you saw it, you go, oh yeah, that. uh that's nice. Yeah. A favorite. Oh, Larry, there are so many. Um, yeah, let's hear it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, this yeah, is yeah.
2: fun. Uh, yeah. it's Star Wars, of course, really captured me, um, and it's Jurassic Park. Yeah. There, that that T-Rex really felt like it was there when they all looked up in wonderment at the uh, Brachiosaurus. Um, yeah. You know, that was a
1: big leap because the computer was. technology was – was not ready to do that type of thing at that time, right? Uh, absolutely, yeah. ILM
2: were inventing new techniques, and they were yeah. figuring out, you know, what technology do we need to develop in order to create these images. Mm-hmm. And it's it's quite a bit easier for us now that a lot of those tools uh, exist, and we can yeah. build on the knowledge of previous projects to,
1: you know, apply to. I remember the abyss at the time too. Uh, yes. Really. Uh, covered some new ground, it seemed. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, having this
2: this water yeah um, this creature made out of water and you know how do you sort of capture the the reflexes and the refraction you know yeah. what should things look like as you're looking through the water yeah that was that was absolutely revolutionary at the time as well um flight of the navigator that's from the 80s the late 80s mm-hmm. um and this this little kid discovers this alien and this alien craft and i remember there was this very reflective um sort of sp- spherical cr- ship that you see mm-hmm. flying over terrain and flying yeah. over water. And I just remember watching that as a teenager, just thinking, okay, how was that done? Um, like, that's mm-hmm. that wasn't possible and you're just seeing, you know, sort of this environment <laughs> reflected yeah. and you're flying back and it's shot by a helicopter. Um, that's, yeah, that was one of the films that really captured my, my imagination and really made me wonder, like, you know, what is happening and how are they doing that? Um, yeah. I really enjoyed Ex Machina, uh, It's a more, yeah. quite a bit more recent, um, but that combination of a great performance with yeah. very, you know, sort of outstanding visual effects. There's um, there's
1: a lot of simpatico between Ex Machina and this movie. Yes. Know the execution the type of work
2: that uh, yes. that we're executing um supporting a really great performance and then yeah. um, creating yeah. something that couldn't exist um also children of men i really love that movie um and it shows a gritty lived-in futuristic london mm-hmm. you know um and that's one of my favorites and, and and i'm sort of seeing parallels also with the with the creator um yeah terms of the kind of things I enjoy. I grew up on sci-fi, Isaac Asimov, Ray yeah. Bradbury, you sure. know, um, and just those lived in gritty worlds. Um, yeah. Adding visuals to support the, the director's um, story is, is always <laughs> yeah. been
1: enjoyable. It's such a touchy thing your profession, too, because some things can become obsolete so fast, too, yeah. and the audience can turn against the effects that used to wow them. They go, oh, why are they doing... Why are they doing rear screen projection? You know, <laughs> you know, like yeah. you know, there's there's some things that happen, but there are some things that are so well done they stand the test of time. Like I was just thinking of two thousand one,
0: mm. like
1: the when the uh, uh, moon shuttle is going through the base, and you know he uses that big shot, and you see the little tiny inserts of the people working in there on the different. It still looks amazing <laughs> to me, and there was. There was no uh, dramatics in that shot. Like, there's nothing going on. You're just you're just watching that, you know, with like the boldness and just. I just I'm just going to show you this world. And there's really no story here. But you're just going to sit and watch and this. just take it in. Yeah, and just take it in. It's so it's still a, one of the most interesting shots in sci-fi that still looks good, which is amazing because that was done. In nineteen sixty six, I think, was when it was actually shot, you know, in sixty-seven.
2: Yeah, it's remarkable. That's how, crazy. How well that holds up. I, I watched that again on a flight um recently yeah. and yeah, it was just taken just taken not taken aback, but impressed with how well so much of that holds up. Um yeah. and I think part of it I mean, there were the techniques that that mm-hmm. um, were being used, but again, so much of that work was just in support of the story rather than the yes. spectacle of, you know. Let's be at five hundred miles an hour, and we're following this, you know, superhero, mm-hmm. or we're doing these things that would never be possible. That sort of pull you out. You're just observing. Yeah. Um, I mean, th- these are longer shots in two thousand and one that typically we see in films nowadays. There was a yeah a great amount of patience um, required yes. to to do that and boldness. Absolutely. Say, we're staying on this, and we're pushing in, and you're just going to observe, and you're you're going to take it in. Um. Yeah. Really. Really mar- remarkable piece of filmmaking.
1: A total immersion. It. Yes. Its idea was to completely immerse you in this world, where there was no doubt you were living in this world. You know. Yeah. <laughs> uh. It's still fascinating to me. You know. And it's rare that you can pull that off, and it can hold up visually. Yes. Know? Yeah. It may be able to hold up story wise, but so many things are like, uh, thanks visual effects, but the story still works. But. Mm, We've moved on, and I
2: think some of that. Mm -hmm. You're right. If you're leaning too much on the tools, you're relying too much on them. I think that's often when um, you start to see the seams after a while. Um, But as with Jurassic Park or 2001, or uh, Terminator
1: 2, Terminator 2, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. When you have that blend with something real that's filmed and then maybe there are some special effects or so some in-camera elements um, and then visual effects on top of that, um, I think it can trick the eye. You're not too sure uh, what is real, what has been added. Um, for all the locations that we went to in the Creator, um, Gareth would often keep the bottom 60% of the frame and then just add material to you know the, the top 40
1: Oh. So, in many ways, it's like the way The Sting was done. <laughs> yeah. <It's, you> know, <laughs> I mean, yeah I, some right. things don't change, really. Some yeah. things don't change. And it just, yeah. the human eye captures
2: realism and you recognize when something mm-hmm. is real. And then if that's you can right. yeah, lean into that. That's and a then, great way to put it. then see, how can we enhance it? What can we add on top of that to then um, complete the story? I think it's it, it's really successful. And I think that's why certain visuals yeah. stand the test of time, because they're built on reality.
1: It's interesting. I love that phrase, the, you know, about the human eye, it does, but the human eye, yeah, here's what's interesting too. The movie's also about AI, right? And mm-hmm. we're living in that world, which is another kind of haunting thing about it, because usually this type of film, we go, oh yeah, that's the future. Sorry, future. You're, you're in the future. I don't got to worry about you now. Right. You know, nice try future, but you <laughs> right. know, you're not here. You no, know? <laughs> yeah, Yeah. But I'm a little scared on this movie too, because I'm like, we're, this feels close to me now with all the comments we have about AI and you know, some of the technology is is AI any like threat to what you do? You know, because right now you guys are probably using AI with some of these, but when does AI become you? Um, that's a that's a great question. I, I don't see mm-hmm. it as a a threat. Um, and All right. I'm just, I'm just asking the question. Yeah, yeah. You, you don't see it as a threat. Good luck. Yes.
2: No, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it really is impressive what these tools are, are capable of. Yeah. Looking back to, um, there was a documentary ILM did. It's called light and magic that talks about mm-hmm. the, the, the inception of the company, um, mm-hmm. And the, the changes that they went through, and there was this transition from special effects and, and miniatures um, mm-hmm. and practical effects to digital. Um, right. And people are now coming in and they're working on these computers where in adjacent, you've got people in the model shop building craft. And um, that was sort of like a huge paradigm shift at that point where mm-hmm. um, a lot of those modern makers were like, okay, I guess we're going to be out of a job, you know, cause it's going to be all these, <laughs> you know, right. these nerds on, you know, this, these tech guys now doing, doing our work. That's right. um, and there was uh, there were so many skills that the the miniatures team had acquired over many, many years of experience of what makes something look real, that they were able to become some of the best digital artists um, mm-hmm. taking their experience and then adapting, shifting, you know, retraining and then moving, you know, moving along with progress and working in the digital world. Um, and I think it's probably we're going to see something similar um, where um, there will be tools that can be leveraged um techniques mm-hmm. that from the experience that we've acquired over the decades that we're able to use that with the new with the new tools. Uh, I should say no AI was used in the making of the creator. <laughs> um, there was you know thousands of really talented artists. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it's something that's that's a, a concern. Um, at ILM, they I think there are some Tools that might be used to accelerate maybe monotonous tasks um, like rotoscoping or or extracting backgrounds. Um, But because so many of these tools, particularly when it's talking about creating imagery, um, is built off of other material in the world, um, the the training material that sort of gives it its intelligence, um, there are copyright restrictions that prevent um, um, us from using any of those those tools mm-hmm. um, wouldn't be able to say well. Give me a, a background, you know, that then starts to use some artwork from various famous map painters right. or photographers, um, right. and so that at the moment is really um, sort of means that we're just really working on the the, the techniques are tried and tested and developing uh, new tools. But yeah, no, it is it's a concern. Um, I I see the tools being used. As a great starting point for mm-hmm. inspiration. And maybe as a director, you may have, when you're sort of dreaming up something, said, okay, well, let me contract an artist to you know, I'm going to describe to them what I see. And then we're going to go through this iterative process of them drawing something and sending it to me. And then I'm saying, oh, that's not quite it yet. Um and then they go back and they make some adjustments. I think that some of these tools will be really useful as a great starting point um, mm-hmm. that you know you can type in. Um, you know, the location, the the, the look, um, just the main sort of keywords that you know. Okay, I want it to be gritty, but it's, you know, a period piece. And, you know, it's set in the South. Um, and to get some images as a starting point that then you can contract someone, an artist, mm-hmm. and say, okay, so I got this image and it's kind of sort of this is what I want. But, you know, I now want you to place these specific elements within that story. So I think it ends mm-hmm. up being... Um, uh, yeah, sort of a beginning concept artist. Uh, some something that can help get your ideas going. Who knows how far this thing will go? But I, I see yeah. that as as being sort of um, a useful companion, and and I, I imagine that people will use it to 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 support what they're doing.
1: It's funny because art has been around since you know humans learned to be creative. You yeah, know, we have the cave drawings and everything. I wonder if AI destroys art. Like if renders art like unrecognizable, like if AI can in- invent and create, is it really creating? And if it, once it competes with that, like what is artistic expression after a while? I think these are big philosophical questions they that we're gonna be faced with. Yes. The more AI gets in that business of of giving us something from nothing, I'll say, because that's what the creative aspect is right now. It's not really nothing because we're always working off of something. Yes, but. From the outside, it's blank page to page, you know, sure. or piece of stone to David, you know, or whatever, mm. you know. So it is interesting how AI is going to compete in that realm. And I don't know, one day is art just gone and it's just product, it's a different name. Like, is there a world that looks like creator in your mind <laughs> at some point? Do you have any feelings about that? I don't want to scare you right now. You know, right. <laughs> just, yeah. Um no no say, I these philosophical things when you yeah, make movies like this, you have sure to start, yeah, yeah, you have to sort of contend with those things. and yeah.
2: Um uh-huh. but for me at the moment, because these tools are being um material is fed into them, right, to uh-huh. to allow them to create. So at the moment it's an amalgamation of human experience and expression and creativity that it's sort of then spitten out. Um so it's, it exists, but it's not from nothing, you know? Um, and I think. If I think about my background, um, my parents from the Caribbean and being immigrants to the UK, and then me immigrating from the UK to um, the states, and the different things I've experienced and you know uh, interactions I've had, that all of that kind of feed into yes. my ability to create imagery. Um, right. And then similarly for yourself, and just you know you're one of one, you're unique. You have all of these um, things that have happened that inform the jokes you write and the stories that you tell. Mm-hmm. Um, that. I think there's always going to be that spark of human creativity that allows us to create something original.
1: That's what we hope. That's what we hope. That's what we hope. I mean, I always feel people just get used to the latest thing. I mean, at some point, the dinosaur becomes a dinosaur, you know? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, it's chasing food. After a while, it's a fossil, you know? Sure. I mean, so Not to put out bleak messages, but I don't know. Mm, That's why when I see these things, like, we were talking about 2001. We are so much closer to uh, AI saying, I'm sorry, Dave, I'm afraid I can't do that. Than we've ever been, it feels like. I'm sorry, Dave, I'm afraid I can't do that. I feel like it's right around the corner of AI saying, no, try again. Yeah. I think we're further, (laughs) I think we're,
2: you know what, we're closer than we've ever been, but I
1: think we're pretty far off from I from I don't know. That feels close to me where identity starts to become a thing with AI. I feel we're real close to identity. Really? And I, I I think so. I think people focus on tasks More than identity, I think. Like, well, look, this robot can kick a soccer ball. Yeah, I want to know what it's thinking. That's what I want to (laughs) know. Like, I want to know the thought processes, you know. I want to know how close is it to having an actual identity where it can discern and it can say – when does it come to the point where it says, no, we only, we keep programming robots to say yes. Mm-hmm. When is it going to start saying no? You right. Know?
2: Like Ex Machina too. Like when will it have Yes, its, Yeah. It's its own goals and ideas that are sort of, uh, you know, at odds with, with humans. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Hopefully we don't have to contend with that anytime soon, brother.
1: Maybe not my lifetime. It'll be in yours, Andrew, because you're a lot younger than me. (laughs) Hey, man. It's so great talking to you. I really appreciate you uh, uh, being on the pod. Thank you so much. With the movie at the Oscars. It's, It's so cool, guys. If you haven't seen Creator... Streaming on Hulu. I don't know if it's on other platforms right now. And I, you know, my regret is, I wish I had seen this on the big screen. This is such mm. a big screen movie. Yes. Um, shame on me that I missed it. I think my son saw it when it came out. And I just didn't have a time to go see it. Um, and I really regret it. This is a big screen type of film. It is, yeah. It would, be, it would be
2: nice if there was some sort of
1: um, um,
2: re-release on, on the big screen. I know. You know that would be, uh, I would love that. Yeah, Gareth puts so much, and the whole team puts so much into every Absolutely. frame. Absolutely, um, yeah. yeah uh, I love that it's up there and that people are responding well to it.
1: Yeah, exactly. So congrats on all that. We'll really look Thank forward you. to whatever you're working on next. Thank you so much, Larry. And uh, take care. Uh, you too. Andrew Roberts, you guys, the creator. Go see it on Hulu in contention at the Oscars. It's uh, you know, it's sci-fi, but it's I'm gonna call it real-fi, 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 yeah, 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 Mm (laughs) real-fi, (laughs) scary-fi. All right, Andrew, thank you, thank you, Larry.